You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. By confessing a bias, which I suspect all of you share, which is that I don't have an instinctive like of killing animals or a particular, right, or a particular instinctive relationship to the notion that killing things is a highly religious act. And I'm, working on, right, and I'm working on the assumption that probably many of you uh, share the uh, share actually in a instinctive turning away from that idea, um, and a right, and an instinctive sense that somehow Judaism has progressed in the transition from animal sacrifice to prayer, um, and therefore any attempt to address the question what is the purpose of animal sacrifice uh, is swimming upstream. And not only, and not only in, terms of teach, in, ter, in terms of teaching it to somebody else, but in terms of explaining it to myself. Um, and if there, there runs the danger that if I do it too well, then you're going to end up looking at me sort of strangely, right? Who is, right? Um, and yourself somewhat strangely. So I'm, I'm willing, to, I'm willing to, say, um, to say that up front, that I'm going to have to try and offer an explanation of animal sacrifice that not only gives us a rational explanation of the purpose of animal sacrifice, but also explains why it is that we don't necessarily like that explanation. Right? That's, a double, right? That's a double challenge I'm going for. I want to explain it. I also want to explain why it is that we don't. Right? Why it is that it doesn't immediately appeal to us. I'm going to begin um, begin that account um, by reading a particular rabbinic uh, rabbinic agadah. I'm going to move from the agadah to a right to a reading of Maimonides in the guide in a text which is often taken as exemplifying the contemporary intuition against animal sacrifice. But I should say up front that while I'm offering this, what I'm going to claim is that this account is implicit in the rabbinic Agadah, um, is plausible, although not necessary, in accounts of Maimonides. Ultimately, what I want to claim is that this is Pshat and Chumash. Okay, so you realize that even though I'm starting from the rabbis and going to medieval era, I'm going to go back into Chumash, and what I want to claim is that what we're doing is Pshat and Chumash. Okay, so here is the um, here's the Agadah. Okay, the sources um, are on the consecutive pages, Hebrew English. Apparently, double-sided copying wasn't happening. Um, okay, so there's so we have a Gemara in Yuma, um, a very strange Gemara, which is a, a series of a series of Joshot on a, on a very peculiar uh, set of Sukim, which I don't have any um, attempt at understanding outside of what happens here. Um, but the, the opening text is and we're talking about the, um, the initiation of the second Beit HaMikdash. Okay, so as we are, as we are at, the, uh, at the initiation of the second Beit HaMikdash, so there is a Tzaka. Um So what is the Tzaka about? Right? Why, why, uh, and the implicit question of the Gemara is, why at the inauguration of the second Beit HaMikdash is there a cry? as opposed to a celebration. Um, so the Gemara says, my Amor, what are we saying here? Amar Rav, Itamar Rabbi Yochanan, Vai, Vai, Hayom, Hainu Haid, Achrabe, Limikdisha, the Kale, the Hechale, the Kaplina, the Kula, Tzadike, the Aglina, the Israel, the Arahon, the Adain, the Rakeid, Benon. Okay, so the, um, so the Gemara says, astonishing moment, it says that at the time of the, of the inauguration of the second Beit HaMikdash, there was a sudden realization that really nothing had changed 
since the destruction of the first base of Mikdash, or whatever it was that had led to the destruction of the first base of Mikdash was still present. Uh, right, so all the mitzvah they're dancing, the mitzvah they're dancing, the same Yetzirah that destroyed the first base of Mikdash is present at the second. Right, this is the very same thing that destroyed our temple and right, burnt our sanctuary and killed all those righteous people and caused us to go into exile. Right, did you give it to us for any purpose other than to receive reward? We don't want this. We don't want this Yetzirah, and we don't want its reward. Okay. Um, so they fast, right, they, fast for, they fast for 30 days and 30 nights. And in the end, the Yitzhah, right, the Yitzhah that they are fighting against, the one which destroyed the first base of Mikdash, is given into their hands. And when they do, right, something in the image of a lion uh, emerges from the Holy of Holies. Okay, that's the, right, that's the, um, the, first, the, first, the first part of the, of the narrative. Okay, then, um, right, and Amr Lunavil Israel. Okay, so now we find out what this was about. The first temple was destroyed by the evil inclination for Avodah and all of a sudden they discover, at the, right at the moment of the inauguration of the second Beit Hamikdash, that the Yitzhar Haraf Avodah is still with them, and they make a decision. They make a decision that they're going to kill the Yitzhar that they no longer they no longer want the reward of the Yitzhar and therefore, they're going to eliminate the Yitzhara. And, the, right, and so the, the defining moment of the initiation of the second Beit HaMikdash is the destruction of the Yitzhara for Vodazara. Okay, now is that, the question is, is that an unmitigated good? So if you read the Gemara so far, we would think that the only cost is the reward for resisting the Yitzhara for Vodazara. Right? They said, you give it to us for any reason other than to receive reward. We don't want it. We don't want its reward. But the story goes on, and this one, is, this part is, is somewhat more um, more famous, is that they just say, you know what? Um, right now that right now that um, now that we've killed this Yitzhara, we move on to later in the story. So it says, Amru Ho'il Ratzonhi, Let's get rid of the Yitzhara for the sexual Yitzhara as well. Right, and so they pray, and they have the Yitzhara for sexuality as well. Um, but but they're told. They're told, they're warned, not clear who warns them, the narrative, the, the pronouns are ambiguous, that if you kill the Yitzhah for sexuality, in the same way that you kill the Yitzhah for idolatry, then the world, will just, the world will just die. So they're cautious, and in the end, um, in the end uh, they wait three days, and they discover that there are no eggs being laid anywhere in Israel. So they realize that killing the Yitzhah for sexuality is, a, right, is not an unmitigated good. So they end up blinding it, and the result of that is that incest is no longer as serious a problem as it was. Okay, now what do these um, what do these stories tell us? So the second part of the story, I think, is fairly straightforwardly understood. Now, the second part the second part of the story says that um, that there is a positive necessity for the etzara for sexuality, and right, which is that basically all forms of creativity emerged the Yitzhara for sexuality. You can't kill the quote-unquote evil inclination without losing, all the, without losing all the creative impulses in the world as well. It's symbolized by there are no, right, there are no eggs being laid right, anywhere in the land. You, you, can't, you can't have, you can't have um, parthogenesis. Right? You can't sustain the world through parthogenesis. The eggs, uh, right, the, eggs don't, the, eggs, the eggs don't get laid either. Okay, right, so that's right, that's a very, right, that's a very conventional notion that, you know, that sexuality is something which is necessary even as it can be abused. 
What I want to argue, though, is that this story is making a broader claim. This, again, is still not radical. That every Yetzirah must have a, must have a flip side. There must, be, there must be a positive purpose for every Yetzirah, and their claim that the only reason you gave it to us to receive reward is to receive reward must be overstated. There has to be a positive purpose for Yetzirah as well, and that means that even though we choose to maintain the world without it, there has to be something lost in the world. And if you were looking for it, in the same way that there are no eggs being laid when there's no Yetzirah for sexuality, there's something else missing in the world when you lose the Yetzirah for Vodazara. Okay. What is, what is it? So the Talmud had told the story, it said, that when they killed the Yetzirah for Vodazara, or actually when they first captured it, so a, something in the shape of a flaming lion emerged from the Holy of Holies. So that's what's missing. Right, what's missing is, right, it's not right, before there's a flaming lion in the Holy of Holies, and now there isn't. Now what is the flaming lion in the Holy of Holies? So if you look at the Gemara Numa, um, the, uh, page 21b, we discover that, the, right, that one of the miracles that existed in the first temple but not in the second is that the flame on the altar, right, had the, right, had the shape of a lion. So what that means is that, um, I think, that the straightforward claim of this, right, of this, of this Agadah is that the loss of the Yetzirah for Avodah leads to the loss of the, the loss of the spirit behind the fire on, the fire on the altar. Yes. Yes. Ah, so what I think is that this story, right, again, this is the story of the inauguration of the second Beit HaMikdash. And what this story is arguing is that there was a conscious decision to forego, right, to forego the Kedusha of Bayit Rishon, because when they, first, when they first built the second Beit HaMikdash, they thought they could have everything that was in the first Beit HaMikdash without having the things that destroyed it. And all of a sudden, right, as, the, as soon as they build it, they say, you know what, right, they didn't realize all along, while they were in Galut, while they were building the temple, they didn't notice that the Yetzirah of Adazara was there. At the moment that they build the second temple, right, which is when all these miracles should happen again, Right, when they expect Chinese to be Bayat Rishon all over again, all of a sudden they say, no, this isn't going to last any more than the first one did, because the same things that led, right, because we didn't realize until we built the temple that we still had the same Yitzra that destroyed the first one. And so they make a decision, right, they make a decision to leave the second Beis HaMikdash as a shadow of the first. It's not that the second Beis HaMikdash couldn't have had the same miracles is that they chose not to let it have the same miracles because they decided that the gain was no longer worth, was no longer worth the cost. Okay, and to spell out the connection I'm making explicitly, what this Agada argues, as I understand it, is that the, right, that the understanding of Korbanot is a function of the Yitzhara for Avodazara. And you can't have, right, you can't, you, right, you can't have Korbanot without a Yitzharah for Vodazara. It doesn't mean anything to you. If you get rid of the Yitzharah for Vodazara, then all the, right, then everything that happens on the altar becomes far less meaningful. The symbol is right, the miracles, the miracles leave. And they made a choice. Right? They made a choice which was that, 
that right that they were going to sacrifice the meaning of animal sacrifice in order to have some kind of temple because otherwise if, right, if they still understood animal sacrifice they would still have a vodazara and the second base of would not last any longer than the first. Yes. Right, so that's the first thing, right? I said I needed an explanation which not only explained explained it, but explained why we won't like the explanation. Right. So the answer is that right, so I think that this Agada gives us a pathway to that. It says that there was a conscious decision within Judaism at some point to eliminate the psychological capacity to appreciate animal sacrifice, because the psychological capacity to appreciate animal sacrifice is identical with the Yitzhara Fovodazara. And the same way that right no right no right no yetara for no yetara for sex no eggs no yetara for vodazara no animal sacrifice. Okay, now this is a, you, know, you can read this as a reconstructive explanation by the rabbis of why the second Beit Hamikdash was inspired. Um, but I think but, but I think that as a pathway for um, right, for uh, I think that what we have here is a rabbinic um, a rabbinic recognition. That somehow, right, somehow the um, right the avodat peitamikdash didn't have the same meaning in bayit sheni as it did in bayit rishon, and right, and a religious explanation as for why. Yes. Well, that's why I, I'm. I know that the, I know that. Okay, so I, I'm I'm not going to give a universal explanation. I said I'm, I'm going to read Chazal, Rambam, and Chumash. Right, that there are, and what I, I'm not going to claim this is the only purpose of animal sacrifice. Right, once you have animal sacrifice, there are going to be all sorts of right. There, there are all sorts of notions imposed on it. Right, that this is this is an ashamla part. Right, this is um, in place of ourselves. But I'm going to argue at core, the reason that we sacrifice there's a reason that we sacrifice animals instead of burning wheat. Right, in order to accomplish it, why don't we say this grain of this grain of wheat this grain of wheat is us? There's a reason that it takes specifically animals and it takes specifically killing, as opposed to burning vegetable matter, or breaking rocks into pieces. Right, and that's what's at the, that's what's at the core of it. Because now you know we all right, we all have an instinctive desire to celebrate the one place when Shrove Cook, for example, suggests that uh, maybe there's more than one place. Uh, I only know of one. The way of Cook suggests that. Um, that Zeravala Hashem in Chatz Yudav means that in the third Beit HaMikdash there will only be Minachot and not animal sacrifice. Um, okay, so let's, so I want to read now a, uh, the Rambam in the guides um, who seems to be saying something that is interpreted um, in a vein which is parallel but, right, parallel but, um, but different. So Ram begins with an analogy, um, an analogy to the way in which religion is um, religion is developed, and he says, you know, when he, when animals are born, they can't eat hard food, and just like physically, when animals are born, they can't eat hard food. So when people are young, when nations are young, they can't eat hard religion. Okay, right, and so this is the way. So the way in which God runs the world. Is he right? Is he first? Right? Is he first trains? Right? Has has uh, developing creatures uh, eat soft food, and then slowly they get right. Slowly they get they get to be able to digest more and more. So if you look at the second paragraph, and um, I'm going to do this one, I think, um, in the English, although you're welcome to follow the, the Hebrew. I believe it is uh, from Rav Kappa. Um The English is my translation of Rav Kappa. 
Um, so he says, many things in our Torah are said in expression of the same time as management, and the same manager may he be ennobled and exalted. For as it is not possible to go from one to the opposite extreme in one shot, therefore it would not fit the nature of humans to abandon all their habits in one shot. Okay. So now Hashem sent Moshe, our teacher, to make us into Amalekhet Kohanim Ve'am Kadosh, through knowledge of him may he be exalted, as he explained by saying, you have been shown so that you would know, know today and take this to heart, and to concentrate solely on his service, as he said, and to serve him with all your hearts, and also serve Hashem your God, and also you shall serve him. And the universally ne- recognized and habitual nature of service then, okay, so Avodah, at the, t- or the meaning of Avodah, of religious, of religious service, at the time of Moshe Rabbeinu was, Right, as well as the general form of service in which we had been raised, not, so not just universally, but the way in which Jews had been brought up, was the sacrifice of various animals in the temples in which the images stood, and bowing to those images and placing incense before them, and the pious and the ascetics were the people then set aside for the service of those temples dedicated to the stars, as I have explained. Okay, so there was no unique way of worshipping the true God at that time. Right, people's conception of religion involved animal sacrifice. Therefore, his wisdom may be exalted, and his management, which is evident with regard to all of his creations, did not require that he command us to abandon us to abandon all those forms of service and utterly disfavor and eliminate them, because that would have been something the nature of human beings, which always finds its rest in habit, um, this would not have been something that human beings, which all, which all always find their rest in habit, could accept. Okay, so... You have animal sacrifice as this universal mode of religious worship. If God had come in and said, no more animal sacrifice, what you need to do is to pray in words, no one would have understood what he was talking about. Had Moshe said this then, he would have been treated the way a prophet would be in these times if he called to the service of Hashem by saying, behold, Hashem commands you not to pray to him and not to fast and to beseech him in times of trouble. Rather, your service must be thought entirely without action. Okay, now this is a line which, uh, which has all sorts of interesting implications. Um, and, it, and how one understands the line about animal sacrifice depends very much on how you understand this. Uh, it is possible to read the Ramam as saying that really true avodah is silence, right, entirely contemplative. And what we call verbal prayer, right, pr- the prayer the way we have it verbally, um, as it is halakhically required, that one, right, that, that you actually express things with your lips is a concession to human nature um, because we hadn't quite been brought all the way from animal sacrifice to thought yet. Um, this is an idea which is explicit, uh, ex- um, articulated explicitly by his son, Rabbi Avram ben Rambam, in which he says that people on the highest level should, in fact, pray silently, um, despite, despite, despite the halakha. Um, and it's, it's entirely possible that the Rambam uh, means that, and right, and he sees that he sees prayer as a way station towards ultimate, uh, right, towards ultimate uh, tefillah. What we call prayer is towards ultimate avodah, in the same way that animal sacrifice was. Um, if that's the case, the Ram is saying that yes, in fact, uh, animal sacrifice should be passe, and there's no reason that one should expect in Bayeshlishi that one should go back to animal sacrifice, right, because in fact, what we have done is made progress. And maybe, we, you know, maybe, you know, the Bayechani is in advance because we, we really don't understand it. We're just doing it. We just have the remainder of habit, and the idea was to eliminate the habit. And then finally, uh, finally in Bayechlishi, we'll get to the point where we don't need it at all. Yes? How do you deal with what seems to be the historical fact that the reason we don't have animal sacrifices is not that we progress, but we don't have an alternative? 
And had, had the Beitimikas continued to upgrade without its destruction, how would that evolution have taken place? We don't know. You know it might be that we would slowly have discovered more and more. You know, somebody would finally come up with a drusha in which the right, in which the carbon tummy could be a mincha. I don't know. You know, it, the Ramam in his halachic works, right, famously says explicitly that don't think that right the Messiah will not come to add or subtract. All right, we'll talk about that uh, tomorrow. And right, specifically says, and of course all the all the sacrifices will be brought. Um, right, so the Ramam in his halachic works, right, um, claims that sacrifices will be eternal. And that's what I'm going to build towards. Okay, you can read the Ramam if you read this as a straight philosophic text. You don't have to read it. You don't read it in the context of halachic works. So saying that he he has a notion of progress, we have progressed. Our failure to understand animal sacrifice is a good thing, um, right? And we should, right, And the only wish is that we could get further and not understand why we want to move our lips either. All right, but this stands in contrast to the Ramam says in his halachic works, where he says explicitly that sacrifices will be reinstituted, and he gives us all the laws of sacrifices and all that. Um, so that's what I'm going to get to when we finish reading it. It says, Therefore the exalted left him these types of service, but transited them from created things or imagined things lacking all truth, to his name may be exalted, and commanded us to do them for him, may he be exalted. Therefore he commanded us to build him a temple. Okay, so in this right, it sounds like really there is nothing inherently valuable in animal sacrifice. It just so happened that animal sacrifice was the mode of worship at the time the Torah was given. If at the time the Torah was given, the mode of worship had been um, writing, write, writing comedies, or the mode of worship, the mode of worship had been throwing balls through hoops, whatever it may be, right? And that's what that, right, that's what the Torah would be talking about. And they'd be talking about writing comedies or throwing balls, throwing balls through hoops. Okay, this divine management accomplished the erasure of the memory of idolatry, and implanted the great true foundation in our mind, namely existence of Hashem and His unity without having our souls retreat or feel alienated by the elimination of the forms of service to which they were accustomed, and then which no other forms of service were known there. Okay, so the simplest way of reading this text independently is that um, it, under, right, it seems to undermine the reading that, um, right, the reading that, um, that, I, that I offered of the Agadah, which is that as opposed to saying that there was a loss in the, right, in the elimination of the Yitzhara for idolatry, and that animal sacrifice was the loss. Brown seems to think that there is no inherent worth to animal sacrifice, um, and that the right, and that animal sacrifice was intended solely in order to extirpate the Yitzhara for idolatry by having us slowly forget what the connection was. Right there, were, right, there were forms of service that were connected to idolatry. Um, by transferring those forms of service to God, we could cause people to forget that, 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 why they ever wanted idolatry to begin with. This, I say, exists in tension with the realm's own work, own halachic works, and so it's possible. Right? Not, I think the, the reading of the Gadda is compelling. It's the, the reading of the realm is possible, um, particularly since the realm has to be aware of this Agada. Um, to ask a question in the realm and say, can it really be just an accident that animal sacrifice was the universal mode of worship? Or does it have to be that, does it have to be that animal sacrifice meets something in the human psyche's conception of religion? And that, right, and that transferring that service to God means that you're taking a particular religious impulse and transferring it to the true religion from the false religions. 
Right? Then we have the question about whether, right, whether whatever that whatever religious impulse is being served by this avodah, is it possible to reach a level at which you can serve God fully with a, in a different way to right to right and nonetheless satisfy that impulse or not? That's a second stage question. But I think it's at least possible to say that what the Ramam is saying is, right, is acknowledging is that it must be that animal service meets something essential in the human understanding of religion. That's why it was universal. And the goal of the Torah was to try and take the same psychological notions, what we call the Yitzhah or and transfer them to God. And then we can leave open the question of whether he thinks that there comes a time when we are completely, when we can serve God without that impulse at all, when we can accomplish the impulse by other means, or whether he thinks that there will always be a necessity to, right, for animal sacrifice in order to meet that aspect of the soul. Yes? Yeah. Could be, but so are so is weeds. So are rocks. Right, but we're all fine with killing. We're, we're all fine with breaking rocks and burning and burning wheat. Right, but we we instinctively recognize there's something different, and in fact, the Torah recognizes it because as things grow more important, right, real kapara require right. We tend to think requires animals, so we we understand. I think that there's an intuitive recognition that killing things is a different kind of action. That even though to some degree the whole world is created for the purpose of humanity, and and uh, despite the, all the statements that you know there exists intention with that, but nonetheless we recognize that we have more possession, of, right? We have more we have more possession of some things than others. The animals have some kind of independent chiyut. Yeah, okay, okay. So, okay, good. So, but, but there's a re- I want to say there's a reason we think it's wrong, and there's a re- yet, and there's, but on the same time, there's a reason that it's necessary. Yes? Right. Good. That's a reasonable. Un- Good. Reasonable understanding. Why would that have a right? Why would God want to create such a right? Is there? Is, what I want to ask you is, let's suppose that's it. Is there anything that you would want of that to survive in the true religion? Okay. Good. in this year is, right, is that we tend to like the notion of progress, right? And so we can celebrate, right? Say, the easy way out is to say that animal sacrifice is to, is to read the Rambam straightforwardly and to say that animal sacrifice was a bad thing, but God let us do it, right? And now God doesn't have to let us do it anymore? Yay. Yeah, the point I was trying to make is Yeah. 
Okay. What interests me, though, and I'm arguing is that the rabbi, the Talmud exists in tension with this idea, because the Talmud doesn't, what I'm arguing is that the, the rabbinic story that begins doesn't say that we develop the desire for animal sacrifice because of the impulse to idolatry. It says that the worship of, right, that the recreation of animal sacrifice recreates the impulse to idolatry. Right, it's, right, it's not just, it's not a function of outside influence, because while we lived in exile, we didn't have the Yitzhah for Vodazara. That's how the Beit HaMikdash got rebuilt. We, get, right, we were exiled because we had idolatrous impulses, and exile, when we're, all st- when we're stuck among the Babylonians, who are all major idolaters, somehow we managed to throw off their influence, and we got back to Israel, and we got to build the second Beit HaMikdash, because we got rid of the Yitzhah for Vodazara, so we thought. Right, in real life, the right, Jews aren't going to pagan, right, the pagan cultures anymore. That's not the temptation. And then, this, again, this is the rabbinic reading. I'm, right, I'm just offering the rabbinic reading. The rabbis say, when we rebuild the temple and we reinstitute animal sacrifice, all of a sudden we discover that animal sacrifice appeals to the idolater in us. Right? It reawakens idolatry. It's not a function of outside influence. It's not that idolatry is alien to the Jews. Right? And, and that animal sacrifice is a concession to it. It's that, right, it's that the impulse to animal sacrifice is the same as the impulse to idolatry, and that is native. Okay, so let, let, wait, let, let's see if we're disagreeing at the end. Okay, so now, so now I want to move to, um, to trying to root this idea, and uh, one other, and to, to try and fit the place of animal sacrifice um, in the... Um, in the rabbinic uh, symbolic system. Uh, so if you take a look at Breshit Gimel Chafdalet, okay, so Breshit Gimel Chafdalet, uh, this is the expulsion of human beings. So it's Vayigarish et Adam, Vayishkon Mikelem Lagan Eden et Hakruvim, Vayadlat Echerv Mitzatechet, Vishmor et Derev Eitzachayim. So when, uh, when Adam and Chava are banished from Gan Eden, so there are, the Kruvim are stationed to guard the way back to Gan Eden. Okay, so we have the use of the image of cherubs, right? Kruvim are there to guard Gan Eden. Now, Kruvim show up in one other place in Chumash. And the other place they show up in Chumash, of course, is on, right, is on top of the Aron. And the voice of God comes, right, comes to Moshe from, not from the, right, from a space behind the Kruvim. And it seems to me straightforward to argue that that means that, the, that means that the voice of God comes from Gan Eden to Moshe, and that one can therefore structure the, right, the imagery of the Beit HaMikdash and the entire Avodat Beit HaMikdash. I think it's fairly straightforward to say that all the Avodat Beit HaMikdash builds towards the moment on Yom Kippur, right, in which the Kohen Gadol comes up to the Kruvim who guard the way back to Gan Eden. And that really is the purpose, right, really the purpose of the entire Avodah and the Beit HaMikdash is to knock, is to get us to knock, knock on Gaiden's door. Um, okay, right, so now, right, so now we have, um, now we have two parallel notions. Okay, one notion is that uh, animal sacrifice and the Yitzhah for Vodazara are connected. And the other is that animal sacrifice and Gan Eden are connected. Okay, and the question is, can we, can we find, a, right, can we find the connection between the, right, among those three? Right, why, right, 
or but is there is there a way in which the desire for the 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 for fravodazara and the desire to return to Eden are connected? Okay. So now I'm going to read uh, one passage which probably many of you have read and found deeply puzzling and see if we can find a connection there. Um, in Shmot Terkhaf Tzukim Yudchet Terkhaf Bet, which is the, the aftermath of the, uh, of the Aser Hadibrot, uh, we have what seems at first glance a very pedestrian and peculiar group of halachot, um, which Hashem says, Hashem says to Moshe, look, right, to say to B'nai Yisrael, look, right, you all seen that I spoke to you from heaven. Right, so A, don't make gold and silver idols of Adazarah. Instead, you should make me an altar of an altar of earth. Okay, so now we have a contrast between right, worship of Avadazara and the Avadat Beit HaMikdash. Okay? And what are the rules of the Avadat Beit HaMikdash on which one is going to sacrifice all these animals, right? With the Vachta Allah, right? Animal sacrifice, right? You sacrifice your Olot and your Shlamim, your Tzon and your Bakar. Okay? So we say, well, if you build it of stones, right? you can't build it out of you can't build it out of anything which requires metal to which requires metal to um, right to to um, to shape the rock because that would be introducing the sword into the Beit Hamikdash. Now this is an astonishing moment because what happens? on the altar. You take a knife, which is made of metal, and you kill things. Right? It's an astonishing claim, right, that the, right, that the, um, that the altar itself cannot be made out of anything using metal because all of a sudden metal symbolizes the sword and not the shlita knife. Why? Okay. Next thing. Right, next thing is this, you know, this halacha which seems to be, you know, uh, you, know, Freud, Freud, you know, just continue to town on the Freudian levels, you know, utter obsession with sexual detail, and no steps. Because as the Kohanim walk up the steps to the altar, right, their genitals will be visible to the, to the altar. Now, what, what, you know, of all the things to care about, why, right, what, why, why put in this, right, this, you know, niggledy-piggledy detail? Okay. Okay, so now what we have is, okay, we have is, right, so we have, in the immediate aftermath of the Aser Hadibrot, we have, right, we have, Noah Zara, yes, animal sacrifice, but if animal sacrifice, no Cherev, no Gilearayot. Okay, now the first thing which Chazal, Chazal tell us all over the place, right, is that there, right, the, what we call the three, card, the three, the three deadly sins, right, are, so if you look at rabbinic literature throughout, that's, right, they're not three parallel tracks. They're, they're three. They're, they're three. They're an integrated whole. Right. So when the Jews commit, right, when the Jews uh, commit the sin of Adazarah by the eagle of the Hav, it's by Yakum Lutzachek. What does Lutzachek be? Lutzachek mean after engaged in Adazarah? It means Gilerayot Shlichut Damim. Okay. That is right. That is the shot of this session of this statement, right, which says that you have. Right, that there's a there's a commandment against Avodah There's a commandment against against Shichut Damim, Kichar B'Chahe because you wave the sword over it. There's a commandment against Gilei Arayot. But why do we have to mention this in the context of animal sacrifice? 
Now, if one understands animal sacrifice as the flip side of Avodah and one understands that the consequences of Avodah Zarah are Shrikut Amim then it follows that the consequences of animal sacrifice right, are Shrikut Amim and you need to give an Azahara against them. Okay. Now, what would, what would the, right, why would that be? Um, so I want to offer here, here's a theory where I'm, I'm moving off, uh, well, off rabbinic and biblical text and offering, I think it's rooted in the text, but I'm, this comes out of my own reading. Uh, I was always bothered by this. I never understood Ovid uh, you know, I, I was always bothered by how it is that people ever, ever felt it meaningful to go bow down to stone things. Right? You know, when, the, when the Nevi'im mock Ovid they seem to make a lot of sense to me. Uh, right, I read, uh, I happened to, uh, peculiarly enough, to have picked up Yechezkel Kaufman's Religion of Israel for the first time on Yom Kippur in the Wayu based Medrash. Uh, so this question was brought, so as you know, this question was brought, was, uh, was brought home to me at a young age. But I never understood it. And then at, um, at one point, I read uh, two books. I read a book called The Golden Bell, um, which is a tour, not a terribly accurate, but nonetheless a very compelling tour of idolatrous practices. And secondly, I read a book called The Mist of Avalon uh, by Marion Zimmer Bradley. Now, the Mist of Avalon has a very interesting cultural history. The Mist of Avalon is responsible for reviving the Yitzhahara for Avodah Zarah in America. Before Marion Zimmer Bradley, there was no neo-paganism really in America. Right? Everybody looked at Avodah Zarah, that's laughable. And then she wrote this book, and all of a sudden, Avodah Zarah made sense to people again. Um, so it's a very dangerous book. Um, but after reading those two books, I thought, oh, now I understand what, what Avodah Zarah is about. So I'll offer this as a theory. Um, Avodah Zarah is about the attempt to achieve transcendence through peak physical experience. As opposed to, as opposed to the ascetic model, which is that one achieves transcendence by denying the body. Right? This is, right, this, Avodah Zarah is a model of achieving transcendence through the body. And, it takes the position, which is scary, that um, peak physical experience involves the utilization of passions, right, the strongest passions at their fullest, and that means the combination of sex and violence. So if you read, if you read Fraser and you read Marion Zimmer Bradley, you note that the peak, the peak of the Zarah rituals always involve the combination of sex and violence. Um, right, you, you lock you lock men in a room with a, right, with a bull, and whichever one of them survive, survive, survive and tear the bull to pieces, then go out and have orgies. Right? That's kind of like a thumbnail sketch of what, of what, is our, right, of what the kind of what is our ritual the Torah, right, the Torah is railing against are, are like. But we should not pretend that that doesn't have real attraction. It has real, attra- right, it has real attraction because, in fact, it does give you, right, it does give you, a, uh, it does give you a high. And it's not as if the only, it's not as if the Torah, and you can treat this as a concession or you can treat this as a good, right? Uh, what I want to argue is the Torah doesn't say, wow, that's not, that, that's fake, that's fake, you're not really getting a high, right, of religion. What it says is the consequences of getting highs that way are societally unsustainable. So what we have is, what we have is we say, okay, we understand that there are certain types of transcendence that are only achievable through sex and violence. So what do we do? We say that the violence has to be ritualized and directed only against animals, 
And one has to be very, very clear to the point that right, even as you're waving the sword at the animal, there has to be a symbolic recognition, knife, not sword. All right? So the altar itself has to be something or it has to be something, of course there's no difference between the metal of the knife and the metal of the sword. You have to have a constant symbolic reminder as you're doing this, but make sure, whatever, that even if you say, wow, and if I get this kind of high of killing animals, right? No, don't think that, right? And we take sex, which, right, and we make it, right, we make it holy, but we don't allow, we so divorce sex from the temple, right, from the temple ritual, we don't deny its transcendence. So we so divorce it from the violence, uh, the ritualist violence of the temple, that we don't even let the Kohanim walk up steps. Right? That's supposed to be extreme. Right? It's supposed to be there to tell you that we recognize the power of physicality. We acknowledge that physicality is essential for achieving a certain type of transcendence. But the violence has to be domesticated and the violence and the sex have to be separated. Okay, um, and I, I want to argue that um, right, so this I think I think gives you shot in in Shmot Chaf Yudchesru Chaf Bet in the way nothing else does. Um, right, that right, that the right, that the um, Avodah right, Avodah is, is leads to those two things, but Avodah Zarah also leads to animal sacrifice. So we so we move from Isra Avodah Zarah, right, Chiyuv Avodat Beit Hamikdash. Is, isurim, right, Isurim of violence and sex associated with Avodah Beit HaMikdash. Okay, I have one more move to go. Right, then, we'll, right, then, we, then we can um, take questions. Get away, okay? So what I said, right, so now we've got, right, we've got an explanation of animal sacrifice. We've got understanding that what Chazal chose to do was to say that once we allowed animal sacrifice, we couldn't do it. Right? Once we unleashed what they discovered at the beginning of, of Bayat Cheney, was that they couldn't any longer, right, they couldn't contain the, right, the, right, the, um, the desire for transcendence through physicality. Once you let it out, once you had animal sacrifice again and you legitimated that, then ended up, right, you were going to end up having sacred orgies. You were going to, right, you were going to end up, you were going to end up with all the implications of the Yitzhah Fadazara again. So Chazal said, you know what, we're going to live a world which is religiously, in a world which is religiously pallid in which we say as, in the same way that Chazal say about the Avodah Zarah, is it's just minagav v'seyem b'yadehem. They don't really know why they're doing this. Right? The same way that the pagans don't really know why they're doing it anymore once they're domesticated, right? when they don't, once they no longer see this physical transcendence as the goal, we don't understand it either. Right? So Chazal's depiction of Bayit Sheni is Jews doing the same thing that they later say, they later say the Goyim are doing. Right? They're going through the motions of a ritual they no longer truly understand. Which makes us understand, by the way, how they could say that about the pagans of medieval Europe, right? or, or even, even, the, or even earlier times, right? at the Talmud, uh, Talmudic times, because they were right. Because the whole world was moving towards a cultural place in which this no longer made sense. Right? There, were, there weren't enough Marians and Bradleys in, uh, in ancient Babylon. Uh, because the, uh, Christianity, had, Christianity, in fact, was going to, in, to inevitably overcome I might overcome um, paganism and the fires of Beldane were going out just like the fire and the Kodesh. The Kodesh, the Kodesh, the Kodesh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, as I say, you can't eliminate. 
you can't eliminate it entirely. They're always going right. When it, right, they're always going to be. They're always going to. Right, what I want to argue this is right. This is an essential part of the human psyche. We made a cultural decision to limit to right to limit it, which is why we don't understand it. But we shouldn't acknowledge that right. It's not there. It's, it's right. It's, it's not. It's not gone. We made a decision to sub, right, We made a decision to sublimate. That has costs. That has costs. We're, we made a cultural decision to right to accept those costs. Part of that cost is we don't understand it without Beit HaMikdash. We read that Sefer Vayikra, it makes no sense to us. But at least I can offer an account of why it is we don't understand it. And then, you know, if, when God willing, Mashiach comes and Bayesh Lishi is built, rebuilt, we're going to have to look, right, we have to look very carefully and see if the Yitzhar isn't dancing us, among us again. And see, right, and see if it's that, right, or if we have to make the same decision again and say, you know, you know can't live with this Yitzhar. That's right, that's... Uh, Right, that's the decision we have to make then. Okay, I got one more step I need to make, which is going to. I don't think it's terribly difficult to um, it's terribly difficult to make the argument that Ganeiden is the place in which one achieves transcendence through physicality. Right, Ganeiden is the space in which there isn't a division between the physical and the spiritual. Okay, and therefore it's right. It's not complicated to make the move and say that the purpose of animal sacrifice is to bring us back to Ganeiden, to a place in which we don't see holiness as, right, as overcoming the body, right, but we see that fulfillment of the body and the soul right, work together. I wanted, to, I wanted to just root that idea textually, and that's, with that I'm, I'm pretty much finished, um, which is the, there is a peculiar set of halachot in terms of hilchot korbanot, which is tmura. Right, Tmura is the rule that if you try to exchange animals, then it doesn't work. An animal which is Kadosh remains Kadosh, and the second animal becomes Kadosh also. But the Torah expresses that in very interesting ways. If you look at the Ikra of Chavzai and Tetri Yudawad, so it says, V'im behema, asher krivmenu korbanu l'ashem, kol asher yitemenu l'ashem yeh Kadosh, lo yachalifenu, lo yamiroto, tov bira, o rabitov. Okay, if you take a look at the Ikra of Perak Chavzai and Sikim Chav Tetri Lamed Gimel, so you look at the, uh, right, so it says, V'chol masar bakar batzon. And by the way, this is always drawn in contrast. There's always a vegetable and an animal korban. The law of Tzmura never applies to vegetable korbanotes. It only applies to animal korbanotes. When it comes to animal, to, right, to maser of animals, we say, what? Lo yivaker v'in tov l'ra. Lo yimiranu. Okay. So the, um, right, so you have this peculiar prohibition against distinguishing between Tov and Ra in the context of animal carbonate. So I want to suggest, hold right, I want to suggest that if we understand that carbonate are the road back to Ganadin, and what got us out of, thrown out of Ganadin was the acquisition of the, right, of the distinction of the Eitzadat Tov Ra. So you have here is a, right, is a, Symbolic, uh, right, a symbolic affirmation of that role of korbanot by saying that in korbanot dafka one has to make sure not to distinguish between tov and ra, because that would undermine the whole purpose, or the whole purpose of korbanot, which is to get you back to Ganeidin. So I think that otherwise the peculiarity of the repeated language lo yivakar ben tov ra, right, which uh, would, uh, makes very little sense. That's actually how this shear actually started many years ago, uh, when uh, my wife had to give it. Uh, my, my, uh, I guess then not quite wife. Uh, my then my, my, my ex girlfriend, <laughs> that time right, that time girlfriend had to give it Vartura on Tmura, and she, right, she said, "Do you have any ideas about Tmura?" 
And I said, well, it says, well, you have a care of a tov l'ra. That seems to connect, right? What, wouldn't it be interesting if the tov, if the tov l'ra were, uh, right, were connected to the Esadat tov l'ra? And that's how this whole, right, that's how this whole Dvartor unfolded. Okay, so, so, the, right, so the next step I want to make is that, that the, the, that the Isra of Tmura is the, right, is the hint to you that, um, that the purpose of Karbonot is to get you back to Ganadin. And then I have one last move to make, and then I'll take questions. Um, which is somewhat tangential, but I think um, I think valuable, uh, which is to think about the structure of Chumash as a whole. Uh, now, this, the, one of the interesting decisions made in Chumash, and you can treat this as a historical accident because Moshe died, but it seems to me from a literary perspective that one is, that, that one is entitled to ask, why does Chumash choose to end before we get to Eretz Yisrael? Right. It, would, it would be a different book if, right, if the sixth Tukim that Yeshua wrote, the Dema, right, didn't just say, and Moshe died, and everybody read it, said, and, right, last sentence, right, and the Jews, the, the, Jews, the Jews crossed triumphantly into the Jordan under the leadership of Yeshua, as God had promised Moshe. Entirely different book. Right? The, Chumash ends with, the Chumash ends with the Jews in Eretz, with the Jews in Eretz Israel, as opposed to Chumash ending with the death, with the death of Moshe. Now, why does, why, does, right, why does Torah end, has to end, with the failure to end Eretz Yisrael, as opposed to the success? So I want to suggest that the literary structure of Chumash is built around the expulsion from Gan and the attempt to return. But you can't get back. Because when you actually get to Eretz Yisrael, you discover it's not Gan But the structure of Chumash is right the role of Eretz Yisrael in Chumash is right Eretz Yisrael is the place which could be Gan Eden. Um, and so I just want right so throw in this is more of a stretch textually but fun is right is that in the very Perak Aleph Pasuk it tells us who are the people who will get to go into Eretz Yisrael they are your children who do not yet know the difference between Tov and Ra. Okay, so Eretz Yisrael is Gan Eden. Gan Eden is the place where you can only go if you don't know if you don't know the difference between Tov and Ra. Um, so only the children get to go to Gan Eden. Um, the way in which the rest of us try to get back to Gan Eden is Avodat is Avodat Beit Hamikdash, um, and um, the reason that the reason Abedinadash gets you back to Gan Eden is because Gan Eden is the place in which physicality is a source of spirituality as opposed to a source of temptation, right? which is what which is what the which is what the um, what Korbanot are, are supposed to be. At a different shear, I could spell out, I could spell out to you a, a much long a much broader exposition of the of the, the return to Eden and the connection to Korbanot specifically. I'll just give you one brief moment about that. Uh, which is that one of that um, one of the things that has to puzzle one is or nice to puzzle where is, when is the first korban brought? No, first even midrash is brought in korban, but where is the first korban? Oh, sorry, kind of heavily. You're right. The first animal sacrifice. Noah. Okay, why? Uh, so Noah, right? Because the whole the whole point of the experience of Noah is that he now sees himself as the new Adam. Now, what, is, what does Noah try to do as soon as the flood is over? He does two things. He brings an animal sacrifice and he gets drunk. Why does he get drunk? So the Midrash gets this absolutely. The Midrash, 
one of the options as to what the Prieta Das was, that the Prieta Das was the vine, right? And so what Noah was doing was he was trying to eat the right, eat the Das again. Right? What, does wine, what does wine do? Wine makes it Wine makes it right. Wine makes it incapable. Makes you incapable of distinguishing between Tov and Ra. So the whole, pr- right, the purpose of everything that Noah does after the flood is to try, is to try and get back to Gan Eden. Right, the two, the two modes he has of getting back to Gan Eden are loss of the knowledge between Tov and Ra, and animal sacrifice. Uh, I suspect that Kain and Hevel's attempt. Actually, so Hevel is actually the first animal sacrifice. Right, I should have raised it. I, I, I suspect that Kain and Hevel's whole life is organized around the attempt to get back to what their parents lost. All right, and that's why Kain and Hevel, right, Kain, Kain and Hevel bring Corbinot because they think it's, right, they think that's the path back to God in as well. Maybe this is the reason that God prefers, right, prefers Hevel's Corbin to Kain. I don't, you know, that, that I offer as a, right, as a, as a wild speculation. I have no basis for that. Um, but I want, but I think that I think that you can organize this connection between Corbin and animal sacrifice, particularly in God Eden, all the way all the way through Chumash, um, and again, a separate share about Noah, uh, but I think that the really interesting question is why it fails. Um, that really, but that's more a share about what Tovara is as opposed to Korbanot. But that's what I want to argue this year. Right? So it's last thread. Korbanot, get you back to Gan Eden. Avodah Beit HaMikdash is organized around Gan Eden. That's why the Kruvim show up in, the, the show up in those two places. Um, the Yitzhar, but Korbanot are also a reflection of the Yitzhar for Avodah Zarah. That means, right, that's always connected to Gilei Arayot and Shvichut Amim. That's the purpose of the Azarot immediately after the, immediately after the, uh, after the Beit HaMikdash. It's an explanation of the rabbinic desire to eliminate the Yetzirah despite the cost, which explains the pallid the pal- nature of Bayacheni and we, where we are today. And the halachic basis for all this is the halachot of Tzmurah. Yeah, sorry, you waited patiently, and you also, yeah. Sorry, you wish, okay. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.